Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs from Future Tech Podcast. Almost here, around the corner technology. Today, I have a very special guest, uh, Anish Mohammed. Uh, he's an advisor to a lot of startups in the blockchain and cryptocurrency realm. And um, my suspicion is that he has many more accolades that he could better describe than I could. But uh, how are you doing, Anish? Oh, I'm doing good. Uh, th- th- thank you for having me on the call. Yeah. Can you tell uh, listeners a little bit about your background? Because uh, it seems pretty extensive. Well, I wouldn't put it that way. It's just that I have a degree in medicine. I have two other degrees in mathematics. I spent some time working in uh, various research labs. Then a bit, I spent a bit of time doing strategy consulting and I spent a bit of time in banking. That's more or less what it is. Okay. And so your most current work is, tell me if I'm correct, is you're an advisor and possibly an investor in startups in the blockchain and cryptocurrency world? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do have a portfolio of startups, and those include uh, the ones in uh, you know, blockchain and cryptocurrency. I, I do advise a couple outside that as well. Okay. Yeah, what I'd like to talk about, if you're all right with it, is um, specifically in the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency, um, sure. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and you know, scaling issues and um, other topics that people may not be aware of that are even um, potential stumbling blocks. So, you know, maybe let's start with that. With with Bitcoin, um, how do you see it evolving and what do you think um, in this coming year in 2017 are going to be some of the um, successes and the stumbling blocks to it? So I, I am quite uh, hopeful about Bitcoin in, in 2017. So I, I've uh, been watching the cryptocurrency space, there's been quite a few papers that have come out uh, last year. And, the, the, you know, even in December, there was one paper, Spectre, that came out. So some of the real challenges that we are actually seeing in terms of privacy, in terms of scalability, and things like that, uh, could be possibly solved by some of these. So I am much more hopeful, A, that, uh, you know, privacy, some of the privacy issues that we actually see in the Bitcoin space, uh, could probably having uh, could end up having very good solutions. Be some of the scaling challenges again. We could have choices on the table that could give us, uh, you know, uh, better than what we currently have, and you know, even maybe improve over time. What about um, scaling? You know, the block size seems to be like an issue in Bitcoin, and another. Well, we'll go with that first. Block size. What's your thoughts on on block size and segre- segregated witness? I mean, uh, I am very much, I mean, I should probably admit, uh, you know, as somebody who is from a crypto background, the concept of segregated fitness really appeals to me. Uh, again, uh, you know, the, the challenge we have is having a pragmatic trade-off. And again, you know, I don't actually, uh, you know, I'm not actually involved in any of the conversations around deciding on the size of Bitcoin blockchain or things of that sort. Mm-hmm. But there definitely is a possibility and an opportunity uh, to be had uh, because the, 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 
the global research community in crypto who have not been that uh, closely involved, have uh, gotten interested. So last week I was in New York and uh, I was attending a real world crypto. There was actually a session and a part of the session on, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and blockchain. It's a significant change, and uh, you know, uh, it, end of this month there are there's actually a conference in Stanford, again looking at some of these issues. So this actually shows that a, a significant increase in the amount of effort being spent on solving some of the problems from a very economic perspective. At the same time, then there's the question of you know what does the the players in the ecosystem really want. That's something uh, I don't think I am in a position to answer, but definitely uh, some of the real challenges that we have in terms of block sizes and trade-offs, we might see answers to that. Okay. And what about nodes? I mean, this may be my own fear, but I've I've seen that the number of nodes, full nodes, have gone down you know, on Bitcoin's uh, blockchain, and there's no incentive, it seems like, to have a full node or to run one. What do you think, do you think that could be a problem if the number of nodes continue to go down and what would be um, the capacity restraint if, if the number of nodes stays the same or goes down? Okay, so firstly, I haven't actually looked at uh, the number of nodes and the capacity, uh, capacity, restra- capacity constraints of uh, Bitcoin blockchain in that sense because uh, that is not something that I spend a lot of time researching on. Mm. But I would expect uh, you know a significant decrease in, in Bitcoin blockchain will actually result in problems with consensus. So and effectively the problem you know it, it, the, the way that most probabilistic uh, algorithms work is larger the number of entities in any any ecosystem it gives you higher levels of assurance. The smaller the number of entities there are possible attacks that could be mounted. So if you had just like four nodes, just thinking about it, you know, at a very high level, if you were able for some reason to cause one of the uh, nodes to go off grid, then uh, you might be able to do attacks uh, to the system at a much lower computational power. So this kind of attacks would be, you know, very feasible. So having a larger number of nodes could be quite advantageous, both for resilience as well as for, you know, having a higher, you know, computational need for mounting attacks. Okay. And uh, you know, I seem to be taking you in a direction that you're not um, is not your favorite. So what what would be best for us to <laughs> talk about? Would it be Ripple or what? You know, what would be your favorite thing to talk about that you feel most comfortable and excited uh, to but- talk about? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll be very happy to talk about smart contracts. I'll be happy to talk about zero knowledge protocols. I'll be happy to talk about uh, the, the, you know, various challenges we have in, uh, you know, blockchain as a whole. Uh, the, the, just the reason that I am, uh, you know, not very keen to have uh, opinions on Bitcoin is a, I am not an active researcher in this space. I have some interest in cryptocurrencies. I've been involved peripherally. Uh, with some of the authors of, uh, you know, some of the papers that's been recently, recently published. But, you know, I am not an active researcher, so I am one of those people who is very keen to be sure that when they talk about something, they know what they're talking about, and they have All contributed right. literally to the topic. So let, let's let's go in that direction. What what are you working on right now that's the most exciting thing to you that you think is going to have a, a great impact that you just, you love the, the research you're doing on it? What is that thing? So... Yeah, I mean, the thing that I'm most interested that there are like three possible pieces that I'm very much interested in that more or less forms a larger piece of the Lego puzzle. 
the, the piece that I'm most interested in right now, which I, ha I see at the end of the tunnel, is verification, verification for smart contracts. So, you know, when we had the challenges with the DAOs and things like that, we recognized that when we have smart contracts, it was pretty hard to actually secure them. So this is a, not a problem that's pretty new. It's been a problem that's been somewhat well studied. We actually have formally verified systems in, uh, you know, in existence for a while. So some of the things that uh, in a security community was known could be reused. So starting from, you know, formal verification languages, or just lambda calculus and things like that, where you could apply, you know, uh, known mathematics to have higher levels of assurance. Uh, for various contracts as you return, that's one thing. And secondly, okay. is the fact that uh, you could uh, use prob probabilistic methods to verify whether a particular instance of a, uh, a VM is being malicious or not. In, and in the, VM, you could also go ahead. Go ahead, sir. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, oh. uh, you, know, you go ahead. You, you, you want yeah, to an, I, an idea just popped into my head. I don't know if this is right. It, sure. Is the issue? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Is it? Is it? Um, is the tough thing about securing a smart contract the fact that you want to be able to verify the parties and that the contract should proceed in a certain way without giving away all the particulars Absolutely. of the contract? Is it? Is yeah. it because it's like a zero uh, knowledge it, it, proof situation? It, yeah, that, that, that's uh, you know the, the bigger picture that you're talking about. So each, I mean, I was thinking of describing it in three pieces more or less. You, you literally, you know, thought through me. Literally, then from where we were talking to the endpoint. So okay. the thing that would be of much interest to a lot of people would be the ability to actually have smart contracts, smart contracts that you know people could run and verify, uh, without revealing much of the information to the or, or to the verifier. Hmm. Okay, okay so, so that is a, a significant importance to a whole class of problems, and this could be in robotics, this could be in trade finance, this could be in you know healthcare. This is the reason that I am very, very interested in it. So I am very much interested in privacy. So I consider myself a cyberpunk. I've been actively involved in this cyberpunk space for a very, very long time. So for me, construct that actually gives us the ability to have some of the nice properties. Along with all the flexibility is key. So if you look at the cryptocurrency space from start, one of the biggest challenges we always had is the concept of uh, pseudonymity. So it's like, you know, is it truly anonymous or pseudonymous? If it's pseudonymous, again, pseudonymous is, uh, is, is a bit tricky in a sense, like it will give you the false impression that you might have high levels of privacy, but in truth, you might not have it. So, you know, there are some protocols that I was describing previously, like Tumblewit and things like that, where you could actually have a level of privacy that you can get out of it. So that's something that I'm interested in. I, I've been looking at some of them. Actually, I've, I've been working on one such protocol with a bunch of people, which I probably can't go into a lot of detail. And, uh, you know, that's one area I'm interested in. But in the smart contract space, to start with, if you have a smart contract, how do you actually verify a smart contract is equivalent to a particular set of logic that we created? That's the first thing we need to know. And secondly, as a language, is it really, really secure in that sense? What are the states of algebra that actually it results in? And thirdly, when we run this, how do we really know the environment in which this is actually running it is uh, you know, truly secure in that sense? What is the state of the system so that 
you know, uh, a, a straight transition caused by the smart contract is what it's supposed to be, right? Mm, okay. So these are the three pieces of the problem that, uh, you know, I would be interested in, I've been interested in, I've been trying to do. So the first piece is the piece where you go, okay, I have, I have, uh, you know, a smart contract. How do I actually translate that to some piece of math that, you know, irrespective of the language and irrespective of, uh, you know, the way you look at it, you can actually recognize it and have equivalence classes, so you can actually recognize this A is equal to B, and A means this, and B means this. Okay, that, that's okay. kind of loosely speaking the formal verification thing. And then the next piece is like, okay, you know, if I have a, 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 a language like that, how do you actually make sure that it's kind of secure? Essentially what that means is, you know, all the challenges that we actually have when you run any kind of language is the challenge you need to look at. How do you actually make sure such, such attacks or such, such side channels doesn't allow reveal information or make it insecure. Okay, that's the second piece. And third piece is the fact that, you know, if there's a case that we actually want to run this in a smart contract in an environment, we need to be sure that when, you know, A plus B is 10, every instance of A plus B gives us 10. So we need to have mm -hmm. an assurance that before we run A plus B equals 10, uh, either the state of the, you know, machine that we are going to run A plus B equals 10 is such and such state, right? So okay. I register A plus B equals zero so that you can actually do A plus B equals 10 after that, right? So that's the third piece. So you can actually use the techniques from, uh, you know, trusted computing. So you can actually, you know, boot the machine up, uh, check the, run a checksum for the BIOS and then operating system and then for the VM. Then you can have, uh, you know, that's a static root of trust. Or you can actually have a dynamic root of trust by which you can take a snapshot of this machine and, and, and the whole environment and make sure that it actually has a particular secure state and then run this on top of it. Okay. So you are looking at different levels of assurance. To start with, the third one is the thing that gives you the assurance that the machine and the VM is non-corrupted. So if you know for sure that you know, the VM that was created previously and the language says was secure, then you can actually be sure that the VM hasn't been tampered with in that sense, right? So that goes to a second level. So it allows you to build a second level on top of it. And then once you have both of them, then you know, you know, if you could actually use some formulas to actually verify the, the contract as such, then you have a very high level of assurance. So you're pretty much building from foundation upwards. Okay, well, let, let's go into, um, in real layman's terms, <clears throat> what would be some of the ways that bad actors would um, alter or attack or, you know, affect a smart contract that's out there? Okay, so to so start with, let, let's think of it from base upwards. So it's like imagine you run uh, a smart contract on a, uh, what's your, uh, on a machine, right? Uh, mm -hmm. A machine which actually is accessible to some uh, malicious actor. So the malicious actor could actually change uh, the way the VM could actually talk to the operating system or whatever that exists, right? Okay. So what that would mean is like when it's asking for A, you could give B, right? Mm -hmm. Or you could give it C. So it doesn't really know. So uh, the, the fact that it's actually trusting whatever is underneath it is the fact that actually, you know, it makes the whole system insecure. So the security of the environment would be key to make sure that anything that runs in an environment is secure. So the, the fact that the security of anything that runs in an environment is dependent on the overall security of the whole container. Is, block, is blockchain enough to memorialize the, the state of the contract at its inception so that it couldn't be altered, or is it not enough? Is there still room for a uh, you know, it, it probably 
Yeah, it probably won't be enough in that sense. Let me try explain this slightly better. So it's like if you if you had a couple of labels, imagine in, in a contract, right? Mm-hmm. So it, the contract could be saying A and label B, right? Yep. So you know, label E A could be matched to something that has a particular checksum. And if you really, really, uh, you know, intercept the, the crypto calls. Uh, that's actually being originated someplace else, then you could pretty much change any of these things, right? Hmm. So okay. if, when you submit uh, literally something to a hash, uh, so if there's an API call, you, you give a block of data and you return the hash back, uh, hash of that back. So there's no way that uh, you know anything could actually check that for you, right? Okay. So you're just submitting the data, you're receiving some something back. And if you have no way to verify that, then you could be fooled, or uh, you know, the same machine could be fooled, right? Hmm. So that's what I'm talking about. Interesting. Okay. And it just actually happened in the past. It was, this is me cooking this up on the fly. This has actually happened in the past. There have been attacks, uh, you know, uh, where you know some of the checksums have actually been uh, changed, and things like that. If you look at the history of malware, and if you look at how malware has attacked various operating systems, you would see multiple instances of these things happening. So it, 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 it wouldn't be far-fetched to think that once enough of value is out there in the ecosystem and there are enough of smart contracts running and people run oh, <coughs> the various you know, smart contract environments, then people might start writing malware or other things like that mm. themed at these. And this is actually what uh, I'm more worried about in the long term. So, so someone could write software that would emulate the smart contract uh, yeah. environment or language, and okay, but it would be like a phishing yeah. attack in a way. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, huh. that's the best way to put it, or the easiest way to put it. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Um, any other uh, methods of attack on smart contracts? So we started at the base with that. What's what's next? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the next one would be language-based attack, right? So so most languages, uh, you know, in general, have, would have some known challenges. So if the known challenges are exposed, sometimes it might be possible for the attacker to get advantage. And the thing that we need to understand sometimes is like, even if the language is secure and if the VM is secure, they could be side-channel attacks. And let me explain what that means. So imagine there's a scenario that we had a room filled with things. We know there are only two classes of things. One is heavy and one is light, okay? Okay. And uh, and you want to take things out of this room, and you transport these things on a box. But even if there's no light there, when you're actually dragging these boxes across the corridor, a person who's just listening will be able to recognize whether you're moving a heavy object or a light object, right? Mm. So this is an example of a side channel attack. Without them even touching any of those objects, they know what is actually in the box. Mm. Okay, so this is an interesting attack. So this could happen uh, for smart contracts. So for example, imagine there's a scenario where you know a value of a, a currency is kind of dependent on a very large transaction happening between two entities. And somebody's just watching this uh, you know, smart contract executing. And by just watching the, the, from the side uh, how fast the smart contract executes, but that you could make a guess on a, uh, you know, if they could make a guess better than a half a probability, that is yes or no, they would have a significant advantage in predicting what the outcome is, and that could translate to millions of dollars, hmm. if I could explain it that way. Okay. Do you do you think that um, a zero knowledge proof that system could be used 
for an attacker to carry out an attack like this, whereby the attacker wouldn't need to know everything but could still, you know, uh, garner details. Okay, the thing with zero knowledge proof is like the, normally it has like three characteristics. The characteristics are interesting in a sense like uh, if you really want to actually be successful in running a protocol, you you approve you know you run the protocol from a prover to a verifier. For a verifiable a verifier to be hundred you know to be certain that uh, confirm that the prover is actually saying the right thing, the prover has to actually tell the truth. So if they don't know know what it is, if it's a question of guessing, it doesn't reveal anything. Mm. So the best way to ex explain a zero knowledge protocol will be like imagine they have a room with a single door. And, uh, you know, I take you uh, with me to the door and say to you, you know, uh, I, you know, you're going to stand here and I'm going to go through this door and you're going to lock this door behind me. Okay. And what happens next is like I'll be seen outside the door at the same side as you are. Now, you know for sure that I know some way to get out of the room other than using the door. But you don't know how I did it. The only thing you know is that I could do that. Mm. So similarly, if an attacker tries to do this, the only information he or she would have is that actually the information they already have and nothing more than that. That's, that's the duty of the normal protocols. Okay, I, I mistakenly thought by querying the system that maybe there was a way to get information out of it just by the, you know, the queries, but okay, makes no sense what I'm saying, All right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it actually makes, in the, in the traditional protocol, it actually makes sense. It's like, imagine you, you imagine you had like two sets of processes running at the same time, okay? Mm -hmm. So two sets of smart contracts. So you are an attacker in addition to, uh, you know, watching the things, you had the ability to submit a smart contract. So what a smart contract could do is actually, you know, uh, ask like a, a, a large number of requests, and so by just watching uh, the VM, you could make out whether you know the other contract is executing or not. So you could pretty much go, okay, is, it, is this contract actually reading anything from this place or this place or this place? And that could actually reveal side channel information. That could be one of the ways by which there are lots of side channels that could be constructed, and this is you know one of the many ways that an attacker like what you just described can actually get a bit more information by submitting a, sub, uh, in a smart contract to a platform that's running smart contracts. Gotcha, okay, okay. Any other um, <clears throat> levels up, any other attacks that uh, could be common? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, 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 the classic one is the logical one. So you had to think of some of the attacks that came out, it's, it's almost right next to a logical one. So it's like, if you create logic and if the logic has some flaws inside it, and that could actually unravel. And the only way to, you know, do this or, you know, figure out this could be like having formal methods to verify. So the, the the way I would describe it is like when you were to when you were writing code in very early ages, it's like in the past, you had logic bombs, right? So literally, a logic bomb would be you know a piece of code that that mis misbehaves and thus bringing down the whole system. So, you know, this, this could actually have a negative effect on the system, right? So yeah. something similar could be done in terms of smart contract as well. So, you know, I'm just giving you very simplistic examples. So you could actually have a smart contract uh, that actually, uh, you know, does like a denial of service attack. So imagine the previous scenario where mm -hmm. we had like two sets of contracts running at the same time, right? Okay. One contract is actually calculating something. The other one is actually trading something. 
So the one that's actually calculating might be prevented from calculating and you could continue trading. And the value of the thing that's being traded could be a function of, you know, what is being calculated. And if you could actually prevent it from calculating, maybe you might be able to use make advantage of that. Right. But that's an example of how things would work. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Ish, very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, another quick question is I, I know Ethereum is the, um, you know, supposedly the, the front runner for a smart contract uh, platform. Sure. But I've also talked to uh, yeah. RSK.co and they're, they're trying to implement a layer on top of Bitcoin's blockchain for smart contracts. Yeah. Any other yeah. instances you've seen and who do you, who seems to be the front runner and where do you think that smart contracts will live in multiple chains or? In an ideal world, I would prefer to be in multiple chains. I probably should admit at this point in time, I have some loose affiliation to the Swarm team. That's okay. Victor and Aaron and the rest of the guys. I, I occasionally join their research calls and you know hang out with them and talk to them about various papers and security and things like that. So I am a bit biased to the Ethereum team. But overall, what I would really like to have is a heterogeneous situation because that would allow us to actually overcome problems in languages in that sense. So, you know, as you might imagine, if you have multiple operating systems, if you were to write a malware, the malware will only run, right? So something similar would happen to smart contract platforms as well. If you had multiple, multiple platforms, it actually mm. gives you an amount of resilience. So that's what I hope will happen. And, uh, you know, always the case of a homogeneous system is that something goes wrong, it will actually bring down everything. It's always better for humanity and for systems as such to have resilience and have heterogeneity rather than homogeneity. Yeah, it's like Apple claiming that uh, no one writes viruses for Macs because it's, you know. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's a quite a simple thing. So, for example, you know, looking back from the way, you know, I was trained, you know, in medicine. So it's like if you actually want to have an infection spread, if you have a more than half a probability that every time you, you talk to somebody, they are you know, susceptible to the infection, you, you would succeed in, you know, the infection would succeed in surviving. But if the fraction of the population decreases and goes below half, right, mm-hmm. then definitely the infection will be cut down. It will die out naturally. So that is essentially what you know, generally heterogeneity gives you. So it's like even if a particular platform has a particular problem, if the you know overall fraction of the population is less than half, then when it tries to spread, it will die out because you know there are not enough of susceptible uh, you know how can I say susceptible people, stroke machines, stroke whatever in, in around we can communicate to enhance the result will be that right. And I like what you're doing because it seems you know. In, Instead of you uh, saying, oh, I love Bitcoin or I hate this or I love Dash or, you know, I love Ethereum, you're learning from all of them. I mean, it sounds like there's some great elements of smart contracts plus, you know, certain cryptos like uh, Zcash or Monero with their zero-knowledge proofs that could be integrated and Bitcoin and create like a, you know, really robust one. Okay. Absolutely. That, that, that's, that's where I hope the future will be, because if we could, in, in an ideal world, if, if I were allowed to dream, what I would have is like the kind of resilience that we actually need to actually have the kind of transactions. So we have like the very least three major problems, as I see it. One is the problem of privacy. OK, the, the problem of privacy is like if you want to have a blockchain or if you want to have a smart contract, unless you have homomorphic encryption, 
uh, you know, it's pretty hard to actually run these things and make sure that nobody's able to, you know, look at the information and gain any, you know, information out of it. The second problem is the question of identity, right? It's like we still have to fix the problem of identity before we can actually go and do things. And thirdly, is this problem of scalability. Scalability in the sense like uh, if you were to look at the set of all consensus protocols, uh, we don't currently have, uh, to best of my knowledge, anything that scales uh, beyond like a thousand nodes kind of thing, right? So what we want is systems that are planetary scale, that can scale at that level, can actually perform at that level, have all the right security characteristics. They can give you privacy, you know, they can give you performance, it, and you know, it can give you integrity and all the things that we actually want. That would be an ideal dream state, right? Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. What, um, any predictions for this year? What do you think any major movements will be in any of the, uh, the cryptocurrencies or forces or factors, you know, um, because you yeah, seem I mean, to have an overview. Things, yeah, what do you see? Yeah, so uh, the first thing I would say is like, uh, you know, I probably should say I'm not the first one to say this. There are other people in the ecosystem that have been saying this. You know, one of the impacts of actually having cryptocurrencies enter the geopolitical arena is the fact that governments have started taking notice. So places where demonetization has happened, where currency regulations have put in, you could all, you know, pretty much easily see an increase in premium for cryptocurrencies in that place. So that is, for one reason, going to increase the value of various cryptocurrencies in, around the place. And secondly, what I would also say is the fact that uh, the, the, there seems to be an apparent need for cryptocurrencies that can give you privacy and other characteristics that equivalent to a paper currency, right? So one of the good things or the best characteristics of a paper currency is that anonymity, right? If you give somebody, unless the people are keeping track, put, putting out of IDs on it and keeping track of notes, it's pretty much hard to actually track down people uh, using paper currencies, right? Right. So that is a very interesting characteristic, and that's one of the characteristics that people who are like cypherpunks really value in cryptocurrencies as well. So that probably might happen. I have seen a, a whole bunch of papers being published with various people, and there's a lot of research that's happening. At some point in time, I, I expect some of them to come out. Uh, so some of the nicer properties around uh, you know, privacy would come out. And similarly, there's a lot of work that's actually happening in, in, in scalability, in a sense like, can you actually have enough of transactions coming into blockchains of various shapes and sizes, right? Okay. Uh, currently, because the numbers are pretty small, uh, that would actually give, you know, produce a whole amount of restriction on what, what is it that they can do with those. So if we get to a stage, we can actually have like thousands and millions of transactions uh, committed, then we are in a different state. And, you know, I, I am pretty optimistic that the numbers would improve and uh, new, new and innovative methods of achieving this come out this year. There's a lot of research happening, a lot of very smart people looking at this. Yeah, no, I know that there's a lot going on. Any major stumbling blocks you think that may come because now governments are waking up to, uh, you know, to blockchains and cryptocurrencies? Um, any regulation forces that concern you? I mean, I have to admit I'm a bit optimistic here, you know, because I used to work in a bank previously and I've actually been involved in advising various people. I get the feel that uh, governments actually are getting to know blockchain and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general and becoming much more warmer towards it. So the latest example that I see is the report that's been published in India. So I, I wasn't expecting, you know, that, you know, a, a very warm reception from that uh, in the Indian side because of all the demonetization and things like that. 
And uh, you know, in the UK, you know, the UK government also has been involved and in looking at you know, cryptocurrencies in that sense. So th there's a general consensus that seems to be emerging out of various governments uh, that you know, if they actually uh, were to have cryptocurrencies, and I expect another one coming out of uh, Canada. I believe from what I understand from my sources that the report has already been submitted and it's just a matter of time the Canadian government is going to release it. So I expect it to be much more positive and similarly, you know, I expect other countries to actually have a, a positive outlook towards cryptocurrencies. Yeah, how do, you, how do you feel about what happened in India um, with, you know, the, the demonetization of uh, those high-end notes? Do you feel like it's going to happen in other places and do you, you think it was a good or a bad thing? So I, I have to be careful in how I say it. I wrote a blog post about it because I thought this to be not optimally thought out scenario. Okay. Because the problem with India is like India, I mean, I'm an Indian. I was born in India. I spent, uh, uh, you know, the whole of my teens and uh, early 20s in India. And, uh, you know, I, I have traveled quite a bit. So if you go to the remote parts of India, there is no such thing as an ATM. Very rarely do you have actually a bank, and a very large fraction of the population in India do actually have a bank account. So this actually provides, uh, you know, an interesting challenge. But at the same time, I have to admit, uh, you know, Indian government has actually through a, through, through a time, it's like uh, you know, the Congress government and the BJP government, they, they they've been thinking about various identity solutions and things like that. So possibly there is a possible solution that might lie there. But overall, if you think about it. In a country where 90% of the transaction or 90 plus percent of the transaction actually happens in uh, paper currencies, and you know 80% of the 80 plus percent of the denomination is either in 500 or 1,000 rupee notes, if in a very short period of time, if you turn up and say this uh, these currencies are not going to be valid, and your ability to actually recirculate this amount of money, given that uh, in a very small fraction of the population actually have access to banks, mm -hmm. and there are not enough banks, and you know. Imagine a very simple physical problem. So money, as such, is a physical thing. Uh, you know, if you were to replace the amount, that amount of money, you need to have very large amounts of physical money moving in and out. If you were to replace a 500 uh, rupee note with a new 500 rupee note, you actually need to take one in and one out. So right. you know, if you are talking about very very large amounts of money, this is like very large amounts of physical cash that needs to be distributed. It's a non-trivial supply chain exercise, uh, you know, it would take a large, very large amount of effort. And one needs to understand that anytime you want to do a very complex exercise, it's going to cost you a lot. So if you think about, a, you know, this being done in a very, very short notice and a very large scale, I would expect that to be, you know, not very cost efficient. And the other problem is the fact that, you know, whenever any new regulation is being introduced, uh, there will be uh, people and systems that will prop up, uh, you know, whether good or bad, it's a business opportunity. People will see there's a business opportunity. If you had you to be able to give like 30% commission to somebody to convert your 500 rupee note into the new note, there definitely will be a market for that. Right. So I, I expect things like that to happen. But the people that would find this very difficult are the people who don't have access to the bank, who doesn't have the ability to give up 30% of their cash, and this would, this I would expect to be the people the lowermost margins of the economy. So that is the reason why I think probably that might not have the kind of impact that the government intended it to have. And, uh, you know, indirectly, that will actually make it very difficult. So if you were going into a remote market and where the transaction always happens in cash and people buy goods in cash, 
if you end up not having money, you can imagine what the impact will be in a society like that. So that is a partly, you know, the way I see it. But at the same time, I'm kind of, uh, you know, happy and what I would say optimistic about various digital cash and e-valid solutions that have popped up. And the, the, the one thing that, you know, they could probably leverage is the fact that there's this identity solution that's at the back of it. Mm-hmm. So, which is called Atar. So, you know, in general, if you were to do any kind of uh, transactions in finance, one of the key challenges would be, uh, you know, KMLA, uh, AML KYC, uh, which is like the know your customer and any money laundering. Right. So, this is a lot more easier if you have very clear identity. So, if I were to give you some money and you would know who I am and you know, you know, I would know who you are. And there are ways by which everybody around that was interested in investigating both of us could actually understand where we got the money from and what we spent it. So this is quite useful for a government to actually do things. At the same time, it allows transfer of value. So that is something I've been noticing in the past, you know, past short while. And it definitely is an optimistic sign. But I don't know if that's the ideal way to bootstrap digital currencies or leverage other or anything like that. There's mm-hmm. always this downside. The downside is the fact that a you need to have an Arthur identity, and this this makes Arthur identity mandatory. B in the sense that uh, a democracy generally implies that somebody as a citizen doesn't always have to prove their identity to the government. Uh, it's, it's the other way around. So the, yeah. if the government actually wants, yeah. So this is an inversion of the normal. Uh, what do you call the normal par- paradox that you would see in a normal democracy? So this is something kind of worrying for cyberpunk community and people who really worry about privacy and democracy and things of that sort. Yeah, it seems like there's there's these trade-offs, right? Um, anonymity, yeah. privacy versus yeah. widespread adoption. It makes you wonder how will blockchain-based technologies and cryptocurrencies ever become widespread if you know, the government wants the AML, KYC stuff, and people want privacy. I mean, it is possible you can actually have it in you know, various measures. So let me try to explain this. So let me give you an example by which you can actually use something called blinding. And I'll explain this in very simple terms. Imagine that in you and me, we agree that, you know, I owe you like 100 quid, right? Mm-hmm. And I, what I say to you is I will give you like 100 and less with, uh, you know, $100 in. So at any point in time, you can unblind it and take the money out, right? Okay. So before we run the protocol, uh, you know, imagine we had like 110 envelopes there and you randomly pick 10 of them and you check that the 10 of them actually have $100 in it, right? Okay. So now you are sure that, you know, with a very, you know, a very high probability that all of the, you know, unless the guy is a magician, assuming no such thing exists, you, you have a high level of assurance that, you know, uh, none of the envelopes are in, empty. So this is actually a probabilistic way to actually prove that you could actually get some of the properties you want while you have to do some extra work. So, you know, so you could unblind it. So essentially, uh, transactions could have a blinding uh, component that if when, uh, you know, if a transaction is considered suspicious, the the government could actually invoke uh, some kind of a normal legal framework and then have a channel which actually would unblind the thing. The, the, the channel would be like a, like a lightning channel in that sense. There's a forward commitment where the person would actually reveal 
the blinding factor. So once the blinding factor is revealed, then you can go back and check whether the, the details of this transaction was true or not. So that is pretty much possible, but it doesn't necessarily mean you need to have all, all the details we publish. Okay, that makes sense. You know, yeah, there always has to be a way, at least in the government's opinion, yeah. that they can get in, you know, with, yeah. with a warrant and with proper yeah. legal channels to get into yeah. a transaction. Absolutely, yeah. But for the most part, it could be truly blind to everyone else and, you know, positively to attackers and all that, so. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. All right, that makes I mean, a lot the, of sense. The thing that the, yeah, the thing that I would also say is that given what has actually happened in the U.S. around the election, it actually shows the ability for third parties or external actors to influence outcomes of things, right? And that should be a very... Uh, you know what I would call an early shot, a early, early warning shot to governments to understand what can happen. Mm. This is just a bunch of emails that are being leaked. What happens if the fluidity of the money could be changed? If the value of the currency could be changed, right? Right. Yeah. So that could actually have a significant impact to them. So they would, it would be in their best interest to actually give an amount of resilience, an amount of privacy, uh, in such a manner that the, the cryptocurrencies are kind of protected against such attacks. In, in a way, what they would be defending is themselves, because if they are going to be attacked and they would be taken out, then what's the, what's the big point? What are they defending? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, all right, so last last couple of questions. You know, you've, you've said a lot, sure. and I appreciate it. Um, a quick thought about quantum computing, or, you know, are there anything sure. you see on the horizon that, that could attack yeah, I mean, the, the cryptology yeah. of cryptocurrencies? Okay, sure. Sure. Uh, so just to be uh, clear, I, I did a bit of work a long while ago in the quantum computing space, so I have a decent idea of what it is. Okay. So I, I, I happen to have met uh, Bennett Prasad and Grover and Mike Mosca and Umesh Wazirani and people like that. And uh, I've actually seen the B-Wave in NASA MS campus as well. So having, uh, yeah, yes. So I, I've had a look at what's actually happening theoretically, what's actually happening realistically. So the first thing I would say about quantum computers is like there are two major you know, major problems that we think of. It's one is Shor's algorithm. Shor's algorithm is kind of finding periods in abelian fields. Essentially what it allows you to do is finding la you know, large, large prime factors of uh, big numbers, right? Mm. That's yep. the basis of RSA. So, you know, that could be broken and that'll be pretty easy to do. And similarly, you have this elliptical problem, which again is a basis of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Right. And that too would be solved in a linear time. It's effectively, what that means is if, you know, if it takes time T, you know, T to be, say, one second, if it's for like 10 bits, if it takes 10 seconds, 100 bits will be 100 seconds. That's like a linear one, okay? okay. So the, the thing we need to understand is like uh, cryptocurrencies right now, it doesn't have that amount of value. So think of everything that you have in your life. Right now, uh, think of the phone that you have in your hand, the credit, card, the credit cards you have in your wallet, uh, your car, everything you think of, the security of all of them is actually bounded by uh, asymmetric crypto. Hmm. So the question that you should ask is like, if if somebody had access to a quantum computer, what would they go for? Would they go for cryptocurrencies or would they go for all the money in the world? So my worry right, is, right. you know, like, you know, and it, it won't be the first time that we actually have in the crypto stack a broken crypto system. So 
So we have gone through SHA, you know, the hash functions being broken. So we had MD5, we had to upgrade it to SHA1, we have uh, attacked to SHA1, we had upgraded to SHA2. So it is not the first time this is happening. So when things happen, people find ways around it and they will actually go through it. And then there's this key rotation thing, which is essentially every time you have a key compromise, you can actually you know, change keys, excuse me, you change keys. And the other thing you should also understand is quantum computers don't actually, aren't that efficient in some classes of problems. So what you describe, for example, as a knapsack problem, so knapsack problem is quite trivial. So when you were to get on a plane, you're only allowed to take a particular amount of kilograms on a flight, right? Right. Say it's 10 kilograms. So if you have 10 kilograms, knowing that it's 10 kilograms, can you guess what's inside the bag? So that's kind of a knapsack problem. This is a hard problem in a computational sense. And uh, there are solutions to this problem, but some of them, are, they, they call it short reverse density with particular bounds, will be very hard for computers to break. And similarly, there are you know, crypto, uh, cryptographic systems that are based on coding theory. Again, those are hard. And similarly, there are other ones based on matrices. Uh, those are hard too. So, you know, A, there are possibilities in which you, know, you could actually have solutions in that sense. But overall, I think we, are, we have misplaced focus on this because of the fact that everything in the world is dependent on this. Why would somebody come and look at something tiny when they have the whole world to go after? That's true. <laughs> that, that's the way I put it, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and the last question is, uh, you know, the push to get rid of cash, a cashless society. Yeah, do you think that um, the idea of a cashless nation or society is a good thing or a bad thing? And what do you see as the role of cryptocurrencies in that? So to me, uh, cashless society in a way, shape or form is going to be a reality. So the reason I'm being focused on looking at smart contracts and things like that is because of the fact that at some point of time, you will have a whole bunch of AIs making lots of decisions. So imagine a world where the, your fridge negotiates with your air conditioner who should be turned on and a TV and the same, same way you have a solar panel on top of your roof, negotiates with the you know, electricity provider should be, receive an electricity or give electricity, right? Mm. All those transactions will always happen in really fast real time and how humans can't interact with that. And most likely solution will be based on smart contracts, right? Okay. So for that smart contracts to actually work, what you need to then have is, uh, you know, a kind of a society which is kind of, you know, cashless in a sense. And, you know, cryptocurrencies kind of pick the boxes. So it is very likely once we get uh, uh, the, the, the state in the society where there are large numbers of, very, very large number of entities that actually interact with each other and value is being exchanged, uh, you know, in all likelihood, we would have some sort of a currency that's cryptocurrency. But what what its shape will be, and how it will be transferred, and all those things, I don't know. Okay. Actually, yeah, I do, I do have one last question, if I may. It's a short one. Sure. What sure. What do you think it's going to take, and when will be the inflection point where there starts to become widespread adoption of cryptocurrency in the world? I. I I, I don't really know, but the thing that I suspect would happen is one of the two, one or one or two or three outcomes. One is the fact that uh, you know the, the governance use cases in, uh, in in the blockchain space have to be nailed down. So the reason I was talking about India is indirectly the governance uh, you know use case of a blockchain is has to be nailed down by identity, right? 
So if you have an identity in a, in a kind of a blockchain store in that sense, then you have the ability to build the rest of the stuff on top of it. Once that happens, you could easily build, bootstrap that to provide cryptocurrency. So it's quite trivial, right? So imagine you have an identity, I have an identity. We actually could have like two pieces of paper saying, you know, I owe use this much and you, you have one say, you know, you owe me this much. We have the identity names underneath it. So that's all you need. And, uh, you know, you can have send messages between the two of them and that will be a kind of, kind of a cryptocurrency in the loose sense of speaking. So that's the thing I'm seeing. And, uh, you know, in terms of time, I really don't know. We, we never know, you know, predict, trying to predict time for technology is generally a tricky business. But mm -hmm. I would expect in the next five to seven years, there will be a significant uptake, at least in the machine space of the, you know, kind of cryptocurrency kind of thing. Okay. If I may say, yeah, if I may say so. Yeah. Well, very good. I'll, I'll, you can relax your prediction muscles now. <laughs> I appreciate you. Uh... <laughs> uh, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I wish I had. You know, if I had, that'd be different. You know, a different outcome. Yeah. No problem. All right. Well, Anish, I, you know, I really appreciate your time. It's been very interesting and. Uh, you know, I think listeners are going to get a lot out of it. They'll probably have to listen a couple times because uh, they're not as fluent as you. But um, yeah, no, a lot of food for thought. So I, yeah, I appreciate you doing the interview. And, uh, I'll be happy to answer any questions that they have any and try to explain it better. Generally, I'm considered quite explaining things which are mathematical in a very simple manner. Mm. So I'm not sure I was able to do that. So if I have been unable to do so, I will happily try again. Okay. Yeah. Well. So last thing is, what's, a, what's the best way for listeners to learn more about what you do, to read more of your writings, to get more exposure to your, your thoughts? Uh, uh, I've actually given like 18 talks last year, so a lot of them are online. You could probably Google them and you could find them. And none of my talks are like a copy of the next one. So every okay. time I talk about a topic, uh, I just keep like 20, 30% of it. So 60, 70% of it is like new. So that's quite could be quite useful and i try try explain things in really uh you know layman terms so that people could easily understand so that's the way i think you know education should happen because for any technology to be uh, going through mass adoption for the policies to be made right everybody should understand the implications of that for that it's very important that people understand the implications of technology and the way I see myself as somebody who tries to educate the people about you know, technology as a whole and implications of technology. Yeah, that's great because if something's foreign or scary or, or um, seems technical, people are going to shy away. So I appreciate uh, yeah. you doing that, definitely. Okay. Well, very good, sir. I appreciate your time. And uh, you know, that's all I have for you right now. I could ask you 10 more million things, but uh, there's not enough time right now. <laughs> you have been listening to Almost Here. Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. 